0: All right, well, I hope you have your Bibles. Let's go ahead and grab them and turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Now, let's begin by reading the first 10 verses. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit. And a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. I like that. And shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things... He must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. "...and lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part of the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years." Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle those, I'm sorry, battle whose number is the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where he, the beast, and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Well, election season is upon us once again, isn't it? You know why I know? Because I'm getting calls on my landline at home. The only time that anybody ever calls me on my landline at home is usually a pollster or some campaign or political advertisement, etc. And I don't know about you, but now that I'm 55 years old, looking back over the course of my life, I always seem to get my hopes up. Oh, maybe this election will be different. Maybe they'll bring in real change. Maybe we'll see America go in a better direction. And then I end up disappointed. And I say to myself, well, wait to the next election. But being a Bears and Cubs fan, I'm already conditioned for this, okay? I don't know how many times I have ever said, just wait until next year. Every year I watch the Bears in their preseason. I get my hopes up. I see the talent that they don't have. (laughs) And I hope and pray You know, when the Cubs won the World Series, I thought, well, this has to be it. This has to be it. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but I got saved the year the Bears won the Super Bowl in 1986. And from that moment on, I said to myself, if the Cubs ever win the World Series, then the return of the Lord is imminent. Well, in 2016, it was so interesting because, as you know, in in the last game of the series... It came down to the wire between the Cubs and the Indians. And as they were battling it out, I couldn't, I couldn't watch. I said, they're gonna blow it. I can't watch this. I I don't have the hair to spare. And I actually turned the game off. I did. I turned it off. And I said, that's it. I'm going to bed. I'm going to watch something important, like the antique road show. (laughs) And I'm just moving forward because I cannot watch them blow it. Well, all of a sudden, Dean and Autumn went to bed, and then we heard it sounded like the shout of an angel. <laughs> the fireworks started exploding all over Arlington Park, and we, we heard people clapping and cheering because we knew the Cubs won. Autumn comes out and she goes, How could you be so wrong? We missed it, Dad. We missed watching the Cubs win the World Series. Well, I'll tell you, reading this passage today, I can say for certain that when Jesus comes again and establishes his kingdom, we will not have to wait for the next election cycle. Everything will be put in order the way God designed it to be, For 1,000 years after Jesus Christ physically returns to this earth, he will reign from Jerusalem for a literal thousand year period of time. It's called the Millennial Kingdom, the title of my message this morning. It is something that has been waited for and anticipated since the time of his first coming. We read in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Notice what Peter says. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Peter was like, get saved. So Jesus will return and that we can enjoy his presence in his kingdom. Paul the Apostle also had this hope of the redemption of all things and the return of Christ in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. This moment in time, the establishing of Christ's kingdom here on this earth Is a promise that the Jewish people have held to, that we as Christians hold to today in anticipation of his physical reign, actually seeing Christ reign from Jerusalem. And as we begin here in chapter 20, notice with me, it all begins, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand in other words he's coming for someone and we will quickly see that it is satan that he is coming for this angel is going to bind satan and throw him in the bottomless pit in the greek it is the word abuso it's the word abyss earlier on in revelation we saw demons ascending out of this pit And now Satan will be bound for 1,000 years by this chain in the pit as Christ rules from Jerusalem. If there's any doubt, look at verse 2 with me. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a 1,000 years. In Revelation 19.20, we read that the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, this is of course speaking of the Antichrist, and the false prophet who preceded him, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, the burning with brimstone. But we know that the Antichrist was energized, filled with Satan himself, and now here in Revelation chapter 20, Jesus deals with Satan directly. So that there is no confusion concerning the identity of the one imprisoned, John goes to great lengths to explain to us here in verse 2 who that is. He calls him the devil. He calls him Satan. He also says the serpent of old. There are many Christians today who debate if the serpent is truly Satan manifested in the Garden of Eden at the time of Adam and Eve. I think this verse silences that debate. I think it is clear that Satan manifested himself in the, in, in the likeness of a serpent to deceive Eve the way he did. So when they say, well, it doesn't say in Genesis that it actually was Satan, that's true, but it says it here. This gives us further insight to that event that happened, of course, at the beginning of all things. And notice what the angel does here in verse 3. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, this is the word abuso, and shut him up, sealed him in and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Boy, I don't understand why. But God does. God knows why. And we'll see in a moment why he releases Satan from the bottomless pit one last time. There is debate amongst many Christians concerning the actual existence of the millennial kingdom. And we'll talk about this in a moment. But one of the portions of that debate is, does God really intend us to believe that there will be a literal 1,000-year period of time? Well, notice with me how many times a 1,000 years is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. Repetition is always a method that Hebrew and, of course, uh, Hebrew writers specifically used to denote that this is something that is meant to be taken literal. When you go back to the book of Genesis, the debate over the word yam, the, the word day, did Moses intend to communicate that? Six literal days were taken of 24-hour periods to create all things. Or does it allow for, the Hebrew allowed for the word yam to be representative of a long period of time. But in combination with day and night, the author is giving us all the evidence that we need. He also gives us numbering, first, second, third, fourth day, etc., And all three of these literary tools indicate that yom should be interpreted as a 24-hour period of time. The same is true here. Now, often they'll come back, well, doesn't Peter write that one day is as a thousand years? To who? The Lord. But here he's looking at it from our perspective, not the dimension that God dwells within but the time dimension that we dwell within. And so I believe that it is clear that he is literally referring to a thousand-year period of time, a millennium. That's, of course, where we get the title, the millennial kingdom. And Satan is bound for the purpose that he may deceive no more. Now, this pit is talked about elsewhere in the New Testament when we look to Jude 6, and the, angel who not, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of that great day. The word darkness there, again, is an indication of the abuso. But Second 2 Peter 2.4 is even clearer. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, then there's great commonality between Jude and Second Peter. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Scholars are in agreement that we are looking at the same place, the Abuso. And he is kept here for the purpose that he may no longer, and this is the word sealed, he's covered. He's uh, then taken out of the equation is another better way of looking at it. And when we talk about deceive, we're talking about one who causes one to wander off the path, to cause someone to hold a wrong view and thus be mistaken. The danger and the cruelty of deception is this, that people who are deceived in their own mind believe that they are doing what is right. And yet, when they fall off the proverbial cliff, when they realize that their path ends in destruction, then they realize and are blindsided by the fact that they have been deceived. That's the danger of deception. That's the cruelty of deception. That people are walking this path thinking that they're doing everything right, but in the end, it is destruction. And yet, from this point, he is incapable of affecting the world in that way. One commentator wrote this. It's very interesting and intriguing. He writes, the truth is ever against him, that is Satan. Therefore, falsehood is is his particular recourse and instrument. But naked falsehood is only repulsive in its own content. What we know to be a lie cannot command our respect. Untruth can only gain credence and acceptance by being so disguised as to appear to be the truth. Falsehood can have no power over us until we are led to believe and conclude that it is the truth. And this deluding of men getting them to accept and follow lies and false hopes under the persuasion that they are accepting and following the truth is the great work and business of Satan throughout every age. And that was from a commentator named Cease. Now, this is why during the millennial kingdom, Satan is removed temporarily from the equation. As Robert Mounts in his famous commentary wrote, he said, the elaborate measure taken to to ensure his custody are most easily understood as implying the complete cessation of his influence on the earth. And that's what we see here. Satan is bound for 1,000 years to be released at the end for one single purpose, allowing him to another opportunity to sweep the earth and to have those who choose not to follow Christ follow Him, and of course, end it all ends in destruction. There are three basic understandings of the millennial period, and I'll put these up on the slide for you. The f- first of the three is one that is commonly held amongst many believers since the period of the reformation in the 1400s it's called amillennialism and amillennialism believes that the millennium is a present spiritual reality meaning it's taking place right now instituted by christ at his first coming at which time satan was bound those thousand year reign is now occurring as souls of the deceased believers rule with christ in heaven so, an amillennialist believes that we are currently in the millennial kingdom. The thousand years is just simply representative of a long period of time. Our amillennialist brothers and sisters believe that Satan is currently bound and is incapable of deceiving the world. Well, my question to my amillennialist friends is this that is one very long chain. Because Satan is rampantly working today. Paul the Apostle and Peter, I'm sorry, Peter stated that Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking in whom he may destroy. Pretty difficult for one who is supposed to be bound and sealed, correct? The ruler of this world has blinded the eyes of those within it that they may not receive the gospel. Difficult for him to do if he is in utter darkness, sealed and bound by a chain. No, I do not believe that we are currently in the millennial kingdom. And I'm thankful, because if this is the millennial kingdom, then wow. It's got to get better, right? Also within the Reformed community, many believe in the post-millennial position. Postmillennialism is the belief that the church, with its evangelistic outreach, has a direct role in bringing in the millennial kingdom, or the millennium. As the nations become more, or progressively more, Christian, and the kingdom of God is established more fully on the earth, the millennial period is ushered in. And after the thousand years of peace and prosperity on the earth, Jesus will return. Well, to my post-millennial friends, I ask this. You must be greatly disappointed because things aren't getting better. They are getting worse. They are deteriorating quickly. And if their hope is to usher in the return of Jesus Christ and the millennial kingdom by saturating the world with Christianity, evangelizing and seeing people get saved, which I, of course, applaud and agree with, I don't believe that that is the catalyst in which we'll usher in the millennial kingdom and the return of Jesus Christ. The only position that makes sense to me is the third. It is the tradition that we hold to at Calvary here. It is called premillennialism. Premillennialism is the belief that Jesus will return before the millennium. And after Satan is bound, the saints will reign on earth with Christ for a thousand years. And I believe that's the one that fits the best. The only manner in which the millennial kingdom, Christ's reign on this earth, can be ushered in is if he himself ushers it in by his return. And that's why I believe John wrote it in the chronological order that he did. That Jesus must return first and then the millennial kingdom is established. Now, there are variations in these three positions, but in essence, premillennialism is the fact that we believe that Christ, in his return, is going to set up the millennial kingdom. But why? Why is the millennial kingdom necessary? It's necessary because it's been promised from the very beginning. This is what the Jewish people were waiting for. This is what Israel was waiting for. This is what Israel believed that Jesus Christ was going to usher in at his first coming. This is what they all anticipated, that when Messiah came, he was going to lead them to throw off the bondage of oppression from the Roman Empire and lead them into, again, a zenith of existence under the reign of Jesus Christ. If you remember the number of times the disciples, including the last question they asked him before his ascension, are you going to establish your kingdom now? This was forefront on their mind. They were looking for it every step of the way. In fact, when the people shouted, uh, Barabbas over Christ. They believed that Barabbas was a quicker means to an end to establish the kingdom of God here on this earth than Jesus himself. Of course, they fully misunderstood all of the prophecies concerning his first coming. And of course, he came not to liberate them from Rome, but to liberate them from the bondage of sin. So from the very beginning, God has promised his people, the Jewish people, that we have been grafted into the vine of Judaism through Christianity. Psalmist wrote, he says this in Psalm 2, 1 through 12. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in desertion. The Lord shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them with his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on, the whole, on my holy hill of Zion. I will, declare, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give to you the nations as for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them into pieces like potters' vessels. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. The promise of his coming was again reiterated in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and he shall and his name shall be called Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he Uh, will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And this continues on through this anticipated hope of the kingdom of God. Even the Lord himself reassured and affirmed to his disciples in Luke 22, 28 through 30, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestowed upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And the kingdom was meant to be a worldwide display of the glory of Christ, when all nature will be set free from the bondage of sin, as Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 19 through 22. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we now know that all of creation groans in labor with birth pangs until now. You see, After God created all things, they were perfect. He said they were good. And then sin and death entered into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And everything went downhill from that. You know, as I like to say often, you know, when we look at our Bibles, once we get past the index and we we flip in it, uh, these two pages, everything is created and everything is good. This page, everything goes downhill because sin entered into the world. And it takes all of this to bring it back to where it needs to be, okay? You've just gone through the whole Bible in one morning, okay? You're a scholar now. This is what God had to do, not only redeeming you and I back from our fallen state, but one day we'll redeem all of creation, Back to the state in which God said it is good, where no longer the stench of sin and death has affected it or uh, touched it and infected it in any way, shape, or form. Funny story. Growing up, my mom, uh, we had big Labrador retrievers, okay, And I don't know if you know anything about big labs. My mom always seemed to get the ones from the shelter that grew up to be miniature horses, all right? They were about 90 to 100 pounds. Their paws were the size of, you know, uh, watermelons. They were huge. I don't know if you know this, but Labrador retrievers have webbed paws. It helps them swim. So when they extend their little claws, you can see the webbing between their paws and it helps them to swim. These things were enormous in our little house in Elk Grove, okay? And they're outdoor dogs. They love to be outside. And one of them had this infinity with the mailman in the front and squirrels in the back. Every time the mailman would pull up, the dog would start wagging her tail and just howling and so forth. And my mom would literally let the dog out run out to the mail guy. The mail guy would put the mail in the dog's mouth and the dog would run back in the house. You know? Now that same dog hated the UPS guy. I don't think the UPS guy ever went to our door. He just threw it out the side of his truck as he drove by. I think it was the rumble of the muffler or something. Just drove her crazy. But if there was a squirrel in the backyard, okay, she had to remind that squirrel that that was her territory. And somehow, some way, she could always sense that there was a squirrel in the backyard. I'll never forget when she first got into this, you know, habit of running after the squirrels. One night, I let her out, and this big horse went running by me. It was at night, and the squirrel took off. And I'm listening. It was dark, and I couldn't, I couldn't see a thing. And all of a sudden, I just hear this crash and this yelp. Well, the squirrel had gone under the fence and the dog went into the fence, okay. Well, one night, the day before school started, uh, you know, the night before the first day of school, it's always chaotic in the home, getting everything ready, making sure we're all prepared to go to the next day, etc. Before going to bed, my dad let the dog out one more time. and She was anxious and he simply thought, that there was a squirrel out in the back. Well, of course, this big horse went running past him, went out, and all of a sudden you just heard this yelping. <laughs> and she came running back in. No, folks, it wasn't a squirrel, it was a skunk. And she got nailed and was just soaked with the stench. She comes, my dad opens the door to make sure she's okay. She bowls right past him, knocking him into the door. She runs through the entire house, jumps on the couch, jumps on the furniture. She, we opened our bedroom door. She went from bed to bed to bed. She got to my sister's bed and she started rolling in the covers. Okay, guess what the house smelled like? The day before school was to start the next day, okay? When my dad died uh, two years ago and I was cleaning out his home, I could still smell that skunk. Now, I know it's psychological. (laughs) I know it wasn't true. You know, it was funny because nobody would interact with me at school the next day. I got my pick of any desk within the classroom. Now, after a while, you know what happens? You become desensitized to it because it's so pugnant. And, and you're just like, oh, you're, it's just like, oh, my gosh. And But then after a while, you become nose deaf. You, and then you just go about your business. The only problem is that everybody around you is not nose deaf. And they realize something has happened. Do you realize that sin and death will not be scoured from this earth until that millennial kingdom reign of Christ, finally ending with the new heavens and the new earth that has never been touched by sin and death. And that's what we look forward to. Notice with me, that in the verses on the millennial reign of Christ are often found in the Old Testament, specifically the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Notice with me. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way. This is during the millennial kingdom. He will walk, we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, meaning he rules and reigns. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations. And rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshare. There won't be any need for the swords anymore because war will be eliminated. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall uh, they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. A few chapters later in Isaiah eleven six through 10, speaking again of this millennial kingdom, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the wean child shall put his hand in the viper's den." They shall not hurt nor destroy in, any, in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. These are all promises of what is yes, yet to come. In, in Amos chapter 9, verse 11, this place will be secure and blessed. Notice what Amos says. And on that day I will rise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damage. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, they, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does these things. But notice with me as we come back to our text in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. As we see those ascending to the thrones, and then on the thrones they sat on them and judged, judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. There are two resurrections, the first and the second. The first resurrection is a resurrection unto life. The second resurrection is the uh, resurrection unto death. One takes place over a period of time. The The first resurrection began with Jesus himself, who is the first fruit of the resurrection. Why is he the first fruit? Because he is one that was dead, then he was alive again, never to die again. Okay, when individuals were raised from the dead in the Gospels by Jesus, it's technically technically called a resuscitation because they physically died once again. But the resurrection is a eternal life state. So they are not to die again. So after Jesus's resurrection, he didn't die, but ascended into heaven. That's how the first resurrection began. Then the first resurrection continues through and up to the the rapture of the church, which we'll talk about in a moment. And then at the end of the tribulation period, the first resurrection also includes those who are martyred because they refuse to receive on their forehead or on their hand the mark of the beast, and therefore they were martyred for for refusing it. And as a result, then God raises them up. Now, when we talk about resurrection, what we are talking about is the rejoining of the soul to the physical body, okay? When we die as Christians, the Bible is clear. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you die, if you were to die before the rapture of the church, then your soul would immediately go to heaven. And you would be in that state before God until the rapture of the church when you are given your glorified body, and that is promised in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the house not built with hands that Jesus promised in John 14. Now, if you look at those who die who aren't in Christ, Their body, again, is buried, and their soul goes to hell, okay? Let me just be honest with you. We go to heaven, they do not. And they wait for the second resurrection, which is a moment where their bodies are once again joined to their soul, and they stand before God, as we will see next week, at the great white throne judgment, where they are individually judged for all that they have done before Christ so John says blessed is he who is part of the first resurrection let me say it this way today is the day of salvation starting with Jesus remember there's that interesting verse that we find at the end of Matthew verse uh, Matthew 27 verses 52 to 53 And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That would have been a spectacle, wouldn't it? Who are these people? Well, Luke gives us an understanding of who they are. These are the Old Testament saints that died awaiting Christ's first coming, And then when Christ came, remember, he descended into the earth to free those individuals who Luke states in Luke 16 are kept in a place called Abraham's bosom, waiting for their redemption. They then are released by Christ as he descends into the earth. Let me just sidestep for a moment and say, no, Jesus Christ, according to some charismatic, Uh, pentecostal circles some believe that jesus christ when he descended into uh, into the earth that he went to hell was punished born again and then rose on the third day that's complete nonsense there's nothing to substantiate that no he went to free these individuals who were kept in abraham's bosom these individuals are who we see walking through the streets of jerusalem after his resurrection and from that point forward, until the rapture of the church, individuals whose soul goes to heaven, waiting for the moment that they will be rejoined with their physical body. Notice with me in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For That is those who die before the rapture. Those who were in Abraham's bosom have been resurrected and they have been uh, given their uh, bodies again, their glorified bodies. But for us, between now and the rapture, that'll happen at the rapture. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of our Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. There's this raptorus, the Latin word where we get the word rapture from, harpazo in the Greek, to be with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with with these words. Okay, I know this is a little confusing, and some of you switched to decaf this morning, which was probably a bad idea. But then we have one more in Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw the thrones, and they that sat on them was committed judgment uh, to them. Uh, These individuals are the disciples, the apostles themselves, who Jesus promised, and we'll see in a moment, that they would reign with him. Then I saw the soul of those who had been beheaded. These are the ones martyred for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the resurrection of Christ, the rapture of the church, and this last moment here where those who had been martyred for the faith all completing what is known as the first resurrection. Now John says something, and I want you to hear it. He says, blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection, for the second death has no effect. To say it another way, today is the day of salvation. Today is the moment that you decide if you will follow Christ to be part of this first resurrection and to be with him for all eternity. As one wrote, he says, since Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and then those are his at his coming and these are now joined by the resurrected righteous dead from the tribulation period. The first resurrection is not emphasizing order but life. In other words, the first resurrection is a resurrection unto eternal life, while the second resurrection will be a resurrection to damnation. This is exactly what is found in the fifth beatitude in verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The first resurrection. And notice with me in verse 7. And Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. We believe this is a representation of the current country of Russia. To gather them together to, uh, to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. In Ezekiel chapter 38, there's a prophecy of Russia with a coalition of nations coming against the nation of Israel. It is called the, the uh, Magog Invasion. That is one event, and we believe here that that is not part of Armageddon. It is an event that happens before Armageddon, sometime most likely at the beginning of the tribulation period. But here at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, Magog is once again brought as an antagonist against Jerusalem and God's people. But instead of being defeated by Israel as they are in Ezekiel 38 at that battle, the Magog invasion, here the Bible says that they are defeated uniquely once and for all. Notice with me. In verse 9, these individuals went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which of course is Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This isn't a battle. Israel doesn't retaliate. Jerusalem doesn't retaliate. God ends this once and for all at this time. And then the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Now, why in the world is Satan released? You see, God gave us and designed us to exercise free will we can make a choice to follow christ or to reject christ to receive him or to turn from him you see god wants you to love him he he desires that you love him and the way he encourages and provokes that love is by first loving you we love him because he first loved us the bible says how did he love us For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that anyone who shall believe in him shall not die but have everlasting life. Today is the day of salvation. Do you know for sure that if something were to happen to you that you would go to heaven? That you would have no doubt that if you were to step out of this world, you would be with Christ for all eternity. If you don't have that assurance, you can have that today. By simply crying out to him, repenting of your sin and believing on Jesus. That's the invitation that is given to all of us. You know, we're going through that process, that wonderful process of renewing life insurance. What a process that is, okay? You know, no exam, health insurance. And then they give you a a 3,000 question questionnaire, okay? When you were 12, what diseases did you have? Well, um, you know, you know how it goes. I love how they call it life insurance. It doesn't benefit you, but it benefits everyone that you leave behind. Salvation in Christ is true life insurance. It is free to you that will cost you everything, though, because God wants your whole life, not just part of it. He wants you to love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Him. And in this new relationship that he offers to each and every one of us, he guarantees that he will be with us and never leave us nor forsake us. We will know a peace that we have never known before. We'll experience love like we've never experienced it before. We will be able to tap into his word through the spirit that leads us through his word and into all truth. And finally, get answers to the deepest questions of life that may have been plaguing us from the very beginning. Those questions that keep you up at night. Why am I here? Who am I? What is this all about? So many look into our world today and see nothing but confusion. But the Bible says God is not the author of confusion. For He will bring into your mind rest by answering those deep questions for you that the world is just simply incapable of answering. And satisfying for you. And all of that is possible through Jesus Christ. What keeps you from Him is your sin. The things we've done wrong, we have all done wrong. None of us are perfect. But if we will confess our sins, He will forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of our unrighteousness, He'll make us new again. The Bible says that we can be a new creation in Christ. For all things old have passed away, all things now have become brand new. That is all for us today. But you and I as Christians, we can prepare today for the millennial kingdom. Did you know that? Well, how can we prepare? As we will see and we have read, we will reign with Christ during that period of time. But what we do now matters and reverberates into eternity and impacts the role in which we will play in the millennial kingdom. Drawing from a parable in Luke 19, I want you to turn there in closing in your Bibles. In Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. In Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. I want to show you how you personally as a Christian can prepare for the millennial kingdom. In Luke 19, notice with me, the question of the kingdom was in the hearts and minds of each and every person that saw Christ at his first coming. The religious leaders specifically wanted to know if his kingdom was near and ready to appear. But he gave them a parable. And in that parable, he answers a lot of their questions, including instructing us how we may prepare ourselves for the millennial kingdom. And I'd like to read this with you quickly, if I may. Now, as they heard these things, Jesus' teaching, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten uh, minus, and said to them, do business until I come. So in this parable, Jesus is undoubtedly represented by the noblemen. And he goes into a kingdom to come the first time, to leave, and then to return again. But while he is gone, he gives each one a minus, uh, a, and that is about three months' worth of uh, income, at at their scale. And he says, Now do business until I come. Take what I have given you and do business until I come. But his citizens hated him and went and sent a delegation after him saying, We will not have this man reign over us. Sound familiar? The religious leaders rejecting him from the very beginning. And so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom... He then commanded these servants to whom he had given money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. That's interesting. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an Austrian man, or a hard man, difficult man, that's another term for it. You collected what you did not deposit, and reaped what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a Austria man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? Now, it's interesting that Judaism was on a capitalistic system. Just a little note there. I guess they weren't into, you know, wealth dispersing and so forth, distributing. And said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that every one who has will be given, and from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now, what is he saying here? That you and I, we have been given certain things in and through the first coming of Christ. When we became believers, we were given certain things. Those things begin, of course, with every blessing that is found in heavenly places. So he is asking us, How have we stewarded the things in which He has given us? How have we used what He has given us for His glory, His purposes? How how have we used what He has given us to further and to expand the kingdom of God while He was away? Therefore, when He returns, rewards us accordingly. Notice, ten cities, five cities. That's interesting, isn't it? And I believe that this will indicate how we impact the millennial kingdom. As one wrote, he said, the analogy of this parable was clear to Jesus' hearers. Jesus was going away to receive a kingship. When he returned, he would establish his kingdom. Until that time, his followers were to fulfill the responsibility that he gave them. On his return, he would reward the faithful, um, commensurate with the service to him and his enemies would be judged before him and as one wrote he said there are three kinds of people in this passage there are the super faithful the less faithful and the unfaithful which category do you think best describes you if you are a christian you fit into one of these categories and he states here that there are three things that we need to look at and how we steward number one the new life in which God has given us. Number one, how have we lived within the new life that God has given us? Have we lived in the continuation of the things that we have put away in the old life, or have we lived for the glory of God? Now, we don't do that perfectly, I know that. But our heart's desire is to glorify Him with each and everything that we do, think, and say. Second, we have what God has given us to steward, our materialism. We have such great prosperity and materialism. Are we using those things for the furtherance of the, uh, the glory of God? Expanding his kingdom through our giving, through our generosity. Are we reflecting the glory of God? Are we showing the world that these things are mere tools in which we have been given to steward until he returns? Of course, having control over our money and not our money over us. And number three, the most important of all, How have we taken the gospel into this world? As as earthen vessels, we inhabit the gospel. The gospel inhabits us. And how now do we share that gospel with those who do not know the Lord? As one concluded, he says this. Some don't have more gospel than others. We all have the same amount. I am getting that gospel out. Are you, he asks? That is my call as a follower of Jesus. Every day of our lives, we need to think about our family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. Whatever our sphere of influence might be, we need to be doing what we can do to spread the good news about the salvation and the new life that Jesus and only Jesus can give them. Amen?